Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 100 128 years and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities. IberiaBank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers Comp and 30 North Investments. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. We know times have changed in New Orleans. A surge of new faces has transformed the city, taking us from 40 straight years of net migration loss to the last few years of annually growing population. Most of us think we can pick out these new immigrants by their hipster beards, tattoos, and bicycles. But stereotyping only works up to a point. My guests today fit the profile of new residents who have a profound effect on the city. But you could easily be standing next to them at Winn-Dixie or Saints game and have no idea who they are. But in their fields, they're superstars. If I listed every achievement on Jay Hake's resume, I'd take up all the time we have. So let me just tell you this by way of introduction. Jay was Director of Research and Policy for President Obama's BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill Commission. He was Administrator of the Nonpartisan U.S. Energy Information Administration during the Clinton Administration. He served as Director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum in Atlanta. And he began his career teaching political science at the University of New Orleans. Jay Hakes, welcome to Out to Lunch. Great to be here, Peter. Rob Lacka is the Director of Strategy and Partnerships at Propeller, a socially conscious startup incubator in New Orleans. He is also a lecturer at Loyola University's College of Business, where he teaches an MBA course on venture capital investing. He is a partner with Medora Ventures, a strategy consulting firm with offices in Louisiana, New York, Massachusetts, and Washington, D.C. Previously, Rob served in Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's Office of Global Partnerships and was on her policy planning staff. As a Presidential Management Fellow in 2010, he co-authored the President's Cross-Sector Partnership Strategy. He was a leading architect of two presidential initiatives, the Global Entrepreneurship Summit and the Young African Leadership Initiative. Woo! Rob Lacka, welcome out to lunch. So nice to be here. Now, Jay, let me start with you. Let's kick off with current events. You're just back from Cuba. Uh, you were invited to give opening remarks at a conference co-sponsored by the government of Cuba and the International Association of Drilling Contractors. What is that all about? Are we looking at uh, some sort of joint U.S.-Cuba oil exploration? Well, back when the Oil Spill Commission was uh, doing its work, we were concerned about the entire Gulf region, and we noted that there was uh, deep water drilling going on off uh, Cuba, just about 45 uh, miles from the U.S. border. So uh, they haven't struck it yet, but they're, they're out there actively drilling. 
So uh, we had suggested that uh, the government sort of communicate quietly, which they did, uh, even before the thaw, and I was involved in some of those discussions. And now with uh, the better relationship, we're talking um, more about that. And uh, they said uh, in Havana last week that they're ready for U.S. Uh, oil service companies to come down there and bid for work. And uh, our feeling is that that work would be more safe uh, if it was done by experienced Mer American firms. The first offshore wells were dr drilled off Louisiana in the late 1930s. So we've been we'll be at doing this. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we've been at doing this for a while. So uh, and, and the the uh, uh, discussions were very professional and very cordial. Um, and uh, there's a new uh, 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 elite coming into power down there that uh, speaks English very well. Uh, they love to see Americans. Americans tip uh, more than <laughs> most nationalities. So we're uh, contributing to their tourist industry. So it was a very positive development, and uh, I think it's one that could have some. Uh, um, positive repercussions for people uh, who do that kind of business around here. Well, that's all news to me, Jake. I, is there a Cuban national oil company? Is that Yes, it's uh, the Cuban Petroleum Union, uh, and uh, they train most of their uh, own engineers. Um, they, they don't send them abroad, but they're very capable, and uh, I was very impressed. Uh, there's a big problem worldwide about flaring natural gas in countries that don't have an infrastructure. So they built an electric plant right near the coast, uh, and they just have a small pipeline coming from uh, from the oil wells, and uh, they generate electricity from it. So they solve a lot of problems with that solution. They, they're not flaring the gas. Uh, they're uh, making the life more pleasant for the people that live around there. And it so happens that these the oil drilling is right sort of where their best beaches are. So oh boy. there's a pretty strong uh, incentive to want to do this right. It's one of those things that's been a little bit beneath the radar. We only mentioned it on page 300 of the oil spill report. But, <laughs> but the uh, Cubans rec uh, you know, uh, recognize the opportunity, and, and they've uh, been very good about it. And uh, where they are, is that, uh, that's not on the continental shelf. That would be very deep. It gets real deep offshore uh, very quickly. Uh, right now, uh, we met the Great Wall Drilling Company <laughs> from China. I, I thought I knew where and, they were and, from. And, just and, by the and name what they're doing is they're drilling straight down and then running a very long horizontal pipe to get to um, the, the fairly deep water formation. So that well is not actually out in the water, but it's uh, going after some of that same supply. That's what we did in California years ago, right? That right. right. That's yeah. how, if you go back to the early years of how offshore drilling started, and originally, you know, most of the, the supply was in a mile or so of the coast. Uh, now we're going deeper and deeper. And, you know, it's, it's quite an enterprise. One of the things I said down there is, is you've got to grasp the technical capability of this. We did a comparison of the uh, Mars space probe and the Mars uh, offshore platform, and there's more advanced technology involved in that drilling project than there is in the Mars Space Project. Uh, more wow. different kinds of engineering, more sophisticated uh, you know, robotics and, and everything. This has opened up my mind. I'm, I think of Cuba as it's going to be supplying us with great cigars and <laughs> infielders, but now it could be oil. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> now, Rob, to say you're overqualified for a career in New Orleans business or politics would be something of an understatement. Like Jay, you've worked at the highest levels of federal government and you've been involved in multi-million dollar investment funds. Of all the things you could have done in New Orleans, the socially conscious business incubator propeller would not be one of the highest paying gigs you could get. I, I'm just assuming this. <laughs> Why were you attracted to propeller? Well, that may be a fair assumption, but I think there's a real difference that can be made through the work that we're doing at propeller 
And what's nice is that it, I really believe that startup companies are creating the future and they create the type of future that we want to have. And so if we're going to invest in companies that are going to be making a difference, and that means in all of the areas where we have local assets, water and water management, healthcare, um, all the education and charter schools that are out there, um, all of it is an opportunity for us to create new sectors so that we can diversify our economy and frankly create more jobs here. And you know, when, when you hear critics in New Orleans, they'll say well, these are great, they're, but they're small and they don't bring a lot of new employment. And when you glue them all together, is it? We're getting there. Yeah. It's a lot, lot more to be done. Um, but you're right. There's been a huge brain gain that's happened, um, especially since Katrina. And a lot of those folks are staying. Um, I originally first came down here right after the storm was with AmeriCorps, was helping to rebuild. Um, went off to grad school, was in D.C., as you mentioned, and um, made my way back. And I was lucky enough to marry a Louisiana girl, which also helps. That is the greatest economic development the state has. Is I think many people have really agree I, with you on that. I, Rob, I saw this in your course catalog. You have that venture capital course, and you said, this is the great line. I wish I could have something like this. Early stage investing meets Ignatian ideals of faith, truth, justice, and service. Now, I would assume... Is Ignatian, St. Ignatius, is that? That's it. So what does that sentence mean? <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds good. It What's does, it actually really? mean? <laughs> so um, there's this whole world called impact investing, social enterprise, impact investing. It's um, becoming all the rage, especially with people who are far younger uh, than I am, people who are coming up in the millennial generation. They really care about finding ways to sort of fit their values with where they're investing and where they're, what products they're choosing to buy, all of that. Um, I don't want to just get caught in buzzwords, though. I think that there's actually something to be said for um, finding companies that you can choose to purposefully make their impact, the good that they're doing in the world, embedded in the way that they're doing their business. So, for instance, if you're doing an education technology company and you're building out a way for teachers and students to interact more closely in a way that um, technology now allows for that's not just pencil on the page, that's going to help the kids to, to learn more quickly, but it's also going to help the teacher to get better feedback. And the more, uh, the higher student performance goes, actually the better the business does itself. And so it's actually marrying up both the social purpose and the for-profit uh, money-making. And so it's a great way to sort of do well by doing good. And, and Jay, one of the things I saw in that the book you wrote, A Declaration of Energy Independence, uh, one of the conflicts you brought up there was the constant conflict between kind of environmental concerns and oil production. Uh, you, you've been, you seem to have, have your arms around that situation a little better than most people. What should we be thinking? Well, I, I think whenever you make energy policy or energy decisions, you have to take into account national security, the environment, and the economy, and you shouldn't focus on just one. You know, sometimes the environmental groups who are good friends of mine um, want to shut everything down and uh, other people maybe want to drill everywhere. So when I go to the environmental conferences, I say you can't drill nowhere. And when I go to the uh, oil companies, I say you can't drill everywhere. Oh, what uh, a way to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think if you think about it hard enough, it's not easy. You can um, sort of overcome these sort of dilemmas or, or contradictions. For instance, domestic oil drilling is often going to be cleaner than oil drilling, say, in Nigeria from a, a climate or atmosphere standpoint because they flare so much natural gas 
and and Which we don't. Which is a valuable resource that we a, used to flare, it, right? It, right. Well, Texas and Louisiana have it under control. North Dakota doesn't quite have it under control yet. Nigeria doesn't have it under control. So, you know, domestic oil drilling, if, if, if you're going to displace domestic oil with foreign oil, you may actually be harming the environment in some sense. So um, I, I sort of argue we should start with the easy stuff like requiring more efficient automobiles because I think that benefits us on every respect. And then when we get down to it at the end, I think there will be ways to, to solve these problems. My, my favorite way is to tax the use of uh, carbon fuels, which we waste a lot of, and then rebate that all through the uh, Social Security system. So you're actually reducing the cost of labor, uh -huh. which is a good thing. And so it's not just punishing people for using energy. I, I, you know, we've run some economic models on that when I was at the Department of Energy, and, and I think that, that would be a good economic way of dealing with the environment and energy. And Rob, what would happen? You, you lived in D.C. with... People jump out the windows at that, or is that seems to make sense here at this table? Well, I mean, I think this table is where we can actually solve problems. I oh, think great, DC great, is so broken, you. you know. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't be going to them to solve our problems. Oh, no, you know? everybody commanders. I mean, I, to be honest, yeah, exactly. Let's get everyone to commanders <laughs> and figure it all out, right? There's a good point to that because you know, in Washington, in the old days, I go back far enough. It was common after um, uh, after you worked Friday morning, you'd go to a good restaurant, have a few drinks, and the decision makers would get together. I've was involved in several of those. Uh, and that doesn't happen anymore because everybody has to run back to their state or That's run exactly back right. to their district. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, if we could somehow get that social aspect of it back into the, the uh, calculation, I think we'd be better and off. And this was Republicans and Democrats? That right. Were, yeah. And Congress and the executive branch. <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. I mean, having lived in D.C., it's so polarized, and it has nothing to do with the people themselves who – if you made it actually about people, then there's an, a, an opportunity to, you know, care about your family, care about the things oh, yeah. that actually matter, not just look at you as, oh, well, you're the enemy, and so nothing you're ever going to do is going to be good. Now, Rob, what happens though? You uh, compared to what you're doing now, how is it tied in to what you did with the federal government? Are there, are there links? So there's one real clear link, which is that each of these sectors that we're working on, whether it's healthcare or energy or education, they're highly regulated industries, right? I mean, any business that's trying to build a company in one of these industries is gonna have to figure out, how do I work with government? How can I become not only uh, the entity that's going to be the most successful in my field, but how do I make sure that um, the government sees me as helping to solve the problems as opposed to pushing back and, and, and maybe a part of the problem? And so that's definitely part of any public-private uh, uh, startup company is going, any startup company is going to have to do a public-private uh, approach in order to be able to solve some of these problems. And Rob, I noticed in one of the, the, the press clippings from Propeller, and actually from your previous work as well, that you, you find you could make a real impact on a new company. In other words, a, a new company without the guidance and direction wouldn't be as likely to succeed as one that had it. Where, what do you bring to the table that does that? You've got it. So, um, I liken this to being bilingual. And so if you're a baby business, you need to learn how to be bilingual. You need to learn how to speak about your business, your English. You need to learn how to speak about your impact, which is maybe Spanish. Right. And so if I'm going to go to Cuba today, I don't know any Spanish, and so I would be in trouble. <laughs> but Jay knows some Spanish, am I right? Uh, my wife does. No, there's more English speakers down there. So. <laughs> well, then good. So, no, by all means, go. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. 
but so if you're learning that as you're a baby business, even if you're um, out there to say, I want to make a whole lot of money, the more you can speak to the social impact, the more you're able to track actually more dollars. You're able to go to the government and say, I'm solving this problem. I can prove to you the number of um, lives saved or the, um, yeah. the test scores that are going up or what, what have you. And it actually translates back. It's just a lot harder to teach adult businesses how to translate back and forth um, once they're further along the line because, frankly, that's just not part of the way that they do business. And so for us, that social impact matters just as much as their financial impact because it makes them a better business. Jane, let me ask you a question here. If we were to come back five years, and I would like to have you come back five years <laughs> or sooner, they, uh, um, how will the energy pie look different than it is now? Well, we've just gone through such a revolution. You know, when my book came out in uh, 2008, uh, I was calling for more energy independence, and uh, frankly, a lot of people just said that wasn't possible. Right. And we've gone from 60% net imports to below 30% net imports, and that comes from uh, massive increases in domestic oil and gas production. That um, then we're displacing coal with gas, and then now coal. Uh, I, coal sort of looks like it's had it. The uh, it's uh, seen its best days. And, and then the wind and solar have, have grown tremendously. And then I, th I think, um, and, and the solar particularly is going to continue. So the big unknown from a business standpoint or a government standpoint is what we call storage, which most people would call batteries. Uh, if we can start getting batteries that recharge quicker, uh, weigh less, it has tremendous implications for the automobile. It has tremendous implications for what we can do at home. So uh, I would expect we're going to see uh, continued uh, uh, dominance of natural gas as a fuel for electricity. Which is good for Louisiana, right? We're it's it's we're good for Louisiana. And I think we'll see wind and solar growing. And then uh, I think we'll, we'll be using much better batteries in about five years than we are now. And, and that's going to make a big difference. It's going to make all the things that we need to do a lot easier. And what about, you know, you just got back from Cuba with the drop in oil prices, which seems to be raising havoc here in Louisiana, not so much in New Orleans anymore, but Lafayette, Homa, uh, Thibodeau, that area. Um, what's, is now a good time for Cuba to be doing this, or do they have different sets of economics? Well, they do have different sets of economics. Uh, they are dependent on foreign uh, imports of oil for their electricity sector. Uh, they pay about 29 cents a kilowatt hour. Which um, is compared to? to Round here might be 10 or 11 cents. Wow. So, so, uh, th so they don't want to be captive uh, of, of the foreign oil uh, coming in. So, so they're, they're going to try to displace that with domestic. They might be willing to cut some good terms in a low-priced environment to get that. But it's, it's still iffy. Uh, you know, the, the, the reserves uh, uh, we have in the Gulf have been explored so much that we kind of know what's out there. Uh, it's more uh, speculative off of Cuba. And if the price stays low, that will certainly, um, you know, be somewhat of a deterrent. But there are many moving parts. I mean, the, the most dynamic part of it is American technology. I mean, a guy named George Mitchell over in Texas, uh, sort of a medium-sized business guy, sort of figured out how to frack with uh, water and some chemicals. And, you know, in this, uh, this is true. In the 70s, we were actually using nuclear explosions to frack. In, wow, that in would Colorado. Yes, uh, that, that's uh, petered off around 1971. <laughs> but uh, Mitchell ha figured out how to do it with water, which is not problem-free itself, but it was a brilliant insight, and then the bigger companies come along, add the horizontal drilling. That, that's the, the, the big uh, uh, dynamic out there. But uh, th there's so many things uh, going on. Uh, I wouldn't expect prices to stay in the 45 to $50 barrel uh, 
uh, range, but it's a risky business predicting <laughs> oil prices. So I, and Rob, I want to just ask you one last question. There's so many things in your background I'd like to talk to you about, but one I saw was particularly interesting to me is that you'd worked for the Howard Buffett Foundation. What is that? I did. So um, when Warren Buffett uh, started the Giving Pledge and announced that he was giving all of his money away, um, he gave um, half his money to the Gates Foundation and then also money to each of his children. And, and so, so Howard is a Howard's son? Is, yeah, that's right. It's, it's really a, an incredible opportunity was, was to work with them and to help them on um, public-private partnerships, figuring out how you could use that philanthropic capital. And um, we worked especially in Ghana um, to focus on conservation-based agriculture. And so as opposed to tilling up the soil, which actually destroys a lot of the nutrients that are in there, you can mulch it, essentially. And that allows for you to be able to um, build for the long term and, and sort of re-enrich the soil and, and ultimately uh, in a place with soil that's so barren because it's been um, destroyed over, over you know, eons, you're able to actually um, re-enrich it and make it something that could be more fruitful. Jay Hakes, Rob Lacka, commentators and citizens can talk all day about the way New Orleans has changed and is changing, but nothing makes the point louder than you two deciding to live here and contribute to the city. Although, like the rest of us, you've decided to live here because you love the city, and all of us are major beneficiaries of your presence here. Thanks for your faith in New Orleans, and thanks for taking the time to join me out to lunch. It's been great. It's been really great. Really enjoyed it. I'm glad, and I'm glad you guys got to know each other. You yeah. should know each yeah. other. <laughs> the, uh, my guests on Out to Lunch today have been Jay Hakes, energy expert, political commentator, and author of the book, A Declaration of Energy Independence. And Rob Lacka, he's the director of strategy and partnerships over at Propeller. You can find out more about Jay and Rob, and there's a lot more to find out, by following the links on our website, itsneworleans.com. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday through Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music and dinner seven nights a week. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. The internet savvy Jennifer Brady is our researcher. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. Mitch's new record, Puzzle, is out now. You can find out more about that at MitchellForeman.com. You can get the show as a podcast. You can listen to past shows, and you can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos of this show on our website and Facebook page. These photos were taken today by Dion Grayson. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace. For more business, New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 100 128 years and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities, iberiabank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers' Comp and 30 North Investments.